Presented by RomulusIT.com, offering remote support for common computer problems. Peter Ivany was Chief Executive Officer of Hoyt Cinemas from 1988 to 1999, growing it to over 2,000 theaters operating in 12 countries. His past business successes include Video Easy and Harris Scarf, and has an estimated net worth of around $100 million. He is currently Executive Chairman of his own diversified investment company, Ivany Investment Group, and still frequently visible for his ongoing philanthropic activities. How are we tonight, Peter? We're good. Yeah, I think we, uh, like a lot of people, we're a lot better than we thought we'd be in March. We have got through this year. We have learned a lot and that'll hold us in good stead um, going forward. I think for everybody, December the 31st, there'll be a bit of relief, but we're now, you know, through the trough of whatever cycle we're in and, uh, you know, not expecting too many surprises going through next year. And I think people will be able to work through it. And I'm already seeing, particularly in Australia, but even around the world, how people are learning to live with COVID and how you can create a life. And uh, as I said, there's a number of positive things to to come out of the non-travelling, not having dinner parties with hundreds of people, um, you know, getting closer to your friends and your family and to things that are important. Because there's no question that these Black Swan events are all, they're all structured to bring us back to a little bit of our true essence and back to a sort of a back to a sort of a mean so some of these excesses that are created by different economic and other circumstances um that's why you have these black swan events to rectify that and bring us back to the middle it's funny they were talking about it in in some polluted areas and i think they they had mentioned india in particular that for the first time in, in about 50 years they've had blue skies turning out now that there's not so much pollution and people are working remotely um oh yeah even our ozone layer is a bit somebody said it's uh it's filling up <laughs> do you um we would hang around in in different circles i think um yeah. as somebody who who is who is wealthy i think one of the things that's always interesting to get your opinion on is that people like me would read a certain amount of media and make our own assumptions but um you know people like you would hang out with other people uh, around your own circle and and have um advisors who would uh you know brief you on on trends and different activity what are you hearing sort of about covid and, and potentially the second wave and, and i guess its seriousness and, and potential impacts um, in, into 2021 and beyond? Well, I think obviously this is going to have a very differential impact across different people. But saying that, um, it has brought our community closer together because, um, you know, when in the beginning, everyone's, I remember one person rang me and said, well, what are you most worried about? And I'm going, I'm just dying. You know, that was in mm. March, April. So that actually brings everyone a, a lot closer. Um, but uh, I think that uh, the first thing is to find a solution through the health situation. And I think most people would be pretty comfortable where Australia sits there. And I think Victoria is an aberration. So we can control it. We have got a, a government that's worked well. We have a society that's been, um, uh, you know, very obedient in terms of doing the right thing and very want this a whole community to do better and that's a real positive reflection on Australia and that I think economically if we take all the advantages of this um, you know there'll be some sort of bubble in in the countries that have achieved success and that's uh, you know throughout Asia and the islands around us including New Zealand so I think people feel 
positive um, that next year. Um, economically, there's no question the disruption will be accelerated from where it was, and we all accept the fact, under some less than others or more, that uh, the government will have a bigger say in our lives. That's something that we'll have to adapt to. And, and I guess the thing that a lot of the discussion that we cross groups is you know how Victoria has performed um, and how that set Australia back three months. But it's also shown that this Australia as a nation has been at hostage to the states for their particular interests. Mm -hmm. And I think everyone who's Australian would love this national purpose to be overriding. Um, and to a point that if they're paying 80% of the bills, at, at a minimum, they should have had the power to determine a lot more about these border settings and definitely should have had the power to do a, a uniform quarantine and case tracing system across the country if they're, if they're paying the bill. So I think that would come out of it. Um, and otherwise, you know, from a global perspective, yeah, I mean, I think what we're starting, I'm starting to talk with my um, colleagues in India, because I'm in an Asian sort of forum group um, of businesses, how America and Europe will be separated from the other countries and what that means for the world. Because if your life, you know, you're, you're basically all your money and all your GDP is going to transfer payments, not producing anything, well, that'll create different levels of global inequities. And, uh, and, and we're sort of, I guess, hopeful that, you know, through, through government and some vision, that we won't be faced with 2 million unemployed next year once everyone goes off JobKeeper. So that would be a, a big part of the discussion because that causes enormous grief, enormous social dislocation. Um, but looking at how the job ads are going up, looking at, you know, taking the view that we're really pleased with what the national government's done here, there's a bit of confidence that um, our unemployment won't go over 10% um, and that we will have, it'll be still difficult next year, but there will be a way out without lines of unemployment, because that's the biggest issue facing Australia. Fair enough. Um, a lot of people aren't going to know you by name. So as we said in the introduction, um, you were the CEO for Hoyt Cinemas. Uh, as someone who uh, grew up in, in Canada, I, I recognize the brands, the Reading Cinema and Cineplex Odeon, where I'm from. Um, do you want to just give yourself an introduction into you know how you got into cinema and just a little bit uh, about about yourself sure um well it was 1983 um 20th century fox was just taken over by marvin davis who was an oil man out of texas and they were interested in the real estate more than the theater business um and so they put uh, hoyts up for sale um originally my father-in-law was one of a number of partners uh that was involved in a small, you know, basically at two theatres uh, in Melbourne. Um, and they decided to bid and they outbid all the other bidders. So they outbid Kerry Stokes at the time, I think. Uh, there's a couple, there's a number of other bidders. Um, and they were the last two, I think. And so basically they had the vision because um, they basically, the real estate was worth more than the business. They actually analysed it on one back of an envelope piece of paper. Snowy River was a fantastic film for us then. And so I was invited to come in and be part of the business. Then um, between my father-in-law, myself, and I had two brother-in-laws, we bought out the other partners. Um, 
after three years. It was a very productive exercise for everybody. Uh, and then subsequent to that, um, that was in 1980, we did the original purchase, 83, we bought them out. And in 1993, my father-in-law passed away and uh, I bought out my brother-in-law's, uh, my other partners with, uh, um, with my, um, <clears throat> with Lendlease and Hellman and Friedman, which is a really renowned uh, venture, uh, or really private equity firm out of San Francisco. Um, so we bought them out. I mean, during that ride, we'd run a whole range of other businesses outside theatres. We'd um, started up two public companies in uh, radio and, and other media and advertising, film production, uh, and, you know, television production. Um, we had the largest radio network, Triple M, uh, in the country at the time. And we started to venture outside Australia and... Uh, so we bought we bought it out. It was about 1993, and then subsequent to that, 96 we went public, and uh, were public for two or three years. And then all of us as shareholders sold out to Kerry Packer in 1999. And uh, so I was at Hoyts from 83 to 99. I was CEO from 19, um, 1988, and uh, which is a story in itself. And then in 1999, we sold. And really, I call that end of phase one of my business career. And from 99 to where I am today, uh, we have built a business in different areas, more of an investment business. And, and also, that's been the real start of my philanthropic activities, um, which take over half of my time. Those private business activity these these days through your own investment company and then um, you know a portion of that for ongoing philanthropic work. Um, do you want to tell people about I guess what drives your philanthropy, your attitude, and, and what you're interested in in that space? Well, I've always looked at even when I was we were building Hoyts. I mean, we rebuilt the Australian cinema landscape. Um, we were the first to go into multiplexes uh, in the uh, late '80s. It was 1988 and uh, that was a story in itself, but we sort of, it was either us or the Americans would come in here and saw this as a fertile market. So we did the first deal in Chadston in Melbourne and it was very successful. And one day it took 40% of the business away from the central business district and took it out to the suburbs. So um, uh, then, so when, you know, I was 44 when I sold out uh, and I, I really, I mean, building these theatres back to what they were in the 30s and getting people back to the movies. I mean, the level of attendance increased uh, virtually fourfold from the time I started in the business to the time I finished, Australia-wide. Uh, it was sort of part social and partly, obviously, for our, um, you know, it was our business, so it was partly for our shareholders as well. And so, but I always wanted to get back. It's always how I grew up, um, a very strong bent that, you know, through improvements, you know, through making profit and through capitalism, you know, we could provide for the benefit of the whole. And that's always been a driving force in my life. So I then, you know, it was an easy decision for me to make. I'd made enough money and I wanted to spend half my life um, in philanthropy. And, you know, the interests that I had were really, I just continued with them. So I've stayed in film. I've gone more into sport. Uh, I was always involved in art and the Jewish community. So those are the four areas that I've developed 
um, in philanthropy and it's just been a joy because um, you get an, the dividends to you because you're just watching how people can grow and develop. Um, it's been wonderful. So, you know, versus the other option was to go and rebuild a Hoyts again, which became, depending on which measure you use, the second, third or fourth largest theatre company in the world from a, a very small start. It's an enormous sacrifice to do that. So the next, what I, what I wanted to do was to do something on a scale that would be as meaningful, but, you know, more where I wasn't, the, you know, where other people, many more people were beneficiaries and also wanted it to be in Australia. I didn't want to spend my whole time traveling. You know, one of the joys or non-joys of having an international business is you don't get a lot of sleep because the hours are, you know, Australia is not uh, Greenwich Central time, you know, so you yes. end up spending, you know, your whole time just awake and you just forget how little you sleep as each country comes into, uh, in, into waking hours and you have to be sort of up up, up with that. So, um, yes, that was what drove the focus of my philanthropy and the reason for doing it was just, that's how, you know, I lived on a kibbutz when I was 19 and uh, I just really had a strong social conscience as my kids have. And also, I mean, that's the joy you get out of, you know, a lot of knowledge where you can really sort of make other people be as good as they can be and that they can't see it sometimes. And, and when you've done it and you've scratched around and, you know, our theatre business at times had various ups and downs, but when you make it through some of those difficulties, you look at the challenges that, that I've had since then, there've been a lot. Number one, I've had the tools to be able to manage them, the confidence to be able to get through them. And you are just sort of a lot less to surmount than what I had growing up, you know, having a business that for a lot of the time was in negative net worth, negative cash flow, and, had a whole range of challenges, but we got through them all. Uh, there's quite a few things to, I guess, unpack or, or begin to ask from that point of view. As we get into that, I guess probably the first place to start off is it's, at least from the outside looking in, it seems fairly unusual for people who are wealthy uh, to step away from their business and to get into purely philanthropic activity unless you know they've got a team of advisors and they've got a huge amount of passive income what what made you decide to to step out of it because oftentimes in in these sort of upper echelons there seems to be a competition for wealth so to kind of excuse yourself from yeah. that and invest yourself back into the community yeah well i think i mean during this period um let's say i spend 50 percent of my time in philanthropy and 50% in business. During the tough times of 2008 and even these times, you end up spending more time in business. So it's, it sort of averages out. When in the, in the easier times, you spend a little easier financial times, you spend a bit more time on community endeavors. Uh, so it, it's sort of a balance, um, but I've got a really good team in here and I sort of work with my skills on the business side. So point number one is you have to have good cash flow to be able to finance it all. So that's number one. So you actually sacrifice cash flow for growth in um, non-cash assets that give you longer term wealth because, um, you know, you should get to that point at a certain age anyway and take the risk out of it. But it's also, you know, I need the cash flow to sort of fund all the activities that I do. And as part of that, yeah, you get out of the game of who's got the highest net worth. So you leave that. And as someone who's been in that BRW list in and out a few times, it's it's not a big issue. Mm. Um, so that was a decision that I consciously took that I was, it wasn't going to be a driving force for me, but I knew that I'd still have to have a business ongoing to be able to fund these activities. 
uh, and, and also enjoy business. And so it's a chance for you to contribute. So we have a couple of pri three private equity ventures being Sydney Zoo, um, Allied Finance and IMAX that I spend a lot of my own time in and developing those. And they're all developing businesses that have been at different levels successful along the continuum. And, and in the past, I've been in Video Easy and Accor Hotels. And so I've had a number of different private equity ventures. So that keeps my hand in, which I enjoy. Um, we also have a private, we also have a fund management business that I'm involved in um, that's involved in technology. So we've kept the business side going. But I've tried to, but most of the investments are passive. And so that would sort of probably take up 20 or 30 hours of my week, um, but variable. And the rest of the time's in passive investments. And we do a lot of work in fixed interests and floating and bonds. And we also have big, you know, we have considerable investments here and overseas in technology. So, so that keeps that part, you know, uh, but I make sure that probably um, in terms of where my investments are located, 70 or 80% are in passive investments uh, that deliver returns. Um, and that's Could you just explain out. that to people for people that, you know, might not be familiar with passive investments and, and uh, where they might look to find those in, in, in their own. Yeah, well, active things. investments are sort of in there. Yes, I can make some money. Yes, they definitely in the zoo, there's some social good there. And definitely it's, it's something where I can use my skills to sort of build businesses with other people. Um, passive investments is where you, you know, you invest in the stock market, you invest in property. We do a lot of financing investments, financing property, financing. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're buying um, bonds or, or interest securities, you're financing someone else's business and you're taking a different risk level. So you get different returns for that. Um, so, but they're relatively passive, but we have to make the decision on the investment where it fits into our portfolio. And then beyond that, um, we, we then monitor it. So we, we've got a very sophisticated computer system um, that we developed ourselves that monitors those investments. And we look at for some investments, we purely, one, we have a high level of investments that we can realise quickly. So if there's any change in the economic environment, we can change them, turn them into cash quickly. So that's helpful. Um, but we also look to ensure that we retain our, you know, our, our profitability every year and our cash flow every year. So that's important for us to fund all of our act activities and that we have, we look at our profit at the end of the year and um, some of it's to do with growth in equity value of, of investments and invest in other private equity funds. Um, but a lot, but we make sure that every year we make a profit um, that we can, that basically supports all of our activities. So we actually run it that way. So you, it's, it's income versus capital, and we try to do both. But our focus as I get older is to do more things that produce more income and less on big capital growth items. So that becomes a lesser part of our, our business. But it also gives me the time because it's passive and other people are out there, you know, if we make the right decisions in the first place, um, other people are operating those businesses. And so that frees me up to be able to, uh, to do all the things that I do. And we, and everywhere I am, we have a very lean team. So we have five people in here and we meet every day because our computer systems give us very timely information. So to have good IT is really critical in this because um, then you can monitor the impact of any sort of changes. Uh, and how you'll fund them. And in any business that you've got for everybody, just rule number one is just have cash all the time. 
You don't even have to make a profit or a loss that much, but just have more cash than you need. And once you have that, you can absorb changes. You're not susceptible to the swings. I know um, people, you know, look at these vast swings that you've had in the last few years at certain periods of time, you know, with the Dow and with NASDAQ and whatever, and just got to absorb those. In some cases, buy into them. In some cases, just stand still. And your other longer term investments that go through also periods of uh, volatility, you have to be able to see them through. And once you see them through and you back yourself and you know that they're good businesses, you can sell businesses at the bottom of a cycle when they're worth less than what they're really worth. That's not good. And you try to sell things when they're worth more. And, the, and that's how the valuation cycle works to do with people's confidence and general mood and availability of capital. If you sell things at more than what they're worth, then you, then you benefit. Um, but you have to hang on through the cycles. So never be short of cash. But, uh, you know, that's how we run that side. And then the philanthropy, uh, that's just a time commitment, really. And it's also strategic because you're sort of helping people build their own organisations. And, and the not-for-profit side's probably grown faster um, than the profit side because more and more people, um, and I find that in, in my peer group, are finding that, that that's an important part of where they spend their time, not everyone. To your original point, some people just in the race for the top and they just want to get bigger and bigger. But... You can't win in that race because always someone bigger and better than you in whatever it is. And uh, we've got plenty of stories. So it's very hard to be number one in a very short period. But I notice for a lot of people, once they get to a certain level of material comfort, there's more and more people want to work. You know, and they realise that this is a whole uh, the, the community um, benefits and the um, of a wealthier country is the ability to look after everybody and. Uh, there's a real social dividend part of it. And I think as I, I mean, I've been involved with these community things for more than the 20 odd years since leaving Hoyt's closer to probably 30. And I've watched more and more people um, come into that space and, and give time to it and really feel the, the benefits of it. And sometimes even driven by your children because that's what they want to do. And that's what they want to see you doing as well. So it becomes a, a family decision. So, um, the people that you may look at in the headlines, in terms of people that I know are wealthy, they're sort of a minority because more and more people are definitely putting, you know, stopping the clock on their, on taking this risk after risk as they get in their 70s and 80s, trying to be the best and uh, diversifying their risk, living a healthier life. And a lot of them are starting to give back in the community. And I noticed that trend. And I'm not sure in terms of the value system, um, that as people get through two and three careers and not just one, is that people's values uh, do shift over to contributing back. And there is pressure on those people to contribute back. And that, I mean, this is more in America because of the way that, um, you know, the state basically uh, um, death duties are. Mm -hmm. It's also part of the culture where in Australia still people feel that governments should look after that, but it is changing. And as people get wealthier and as governments create frameworks for people to become wealthier, people recognise they have an obligation to give back. Probably a few things from there. We've taken that a few places. I mean, we were talking about this before we kind of hit record. Mm. There's an attitude change and you've talked about it as well. You mentioned the Americans because the sort of the American dream is, is really that idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. There's um, a lot of benefit that if you fall over with bankruptcy laws that 
you know, President yeah. Trump has talked about and how that's benefit his businesses that encourages you to go out there and make your own wealth. And the, yeah. the attitude I noticed, you know, when I came over to Australia and in Canada is a bit similar like that is that, um, it's kind of get a job and stay put and the government will look after you. Uh, how do you, you know, you're, you're kind of expanding on that around the world. How, how do you see this in terms of, you know, one's own personal development and what you should be trying to aim for in, in your own life and yeah. how society should operate? Well, I think in America, just take America and England. I mean, they give away out of their net wealth, roughly 10% right? goes back in the community. Whereas Australia, the numbers are more like one or 2%. And until they change the uh, estate planning laws and some of the tax deductibility of, um, if there is an improvement there of your donations, that'll probably stay. Um, but um, so there's different things driving the American philanthropy. But amongst wealthy people in America, people actually put their hands up and say, I gave X dollars. It's just part of that culture. And for that, they get recognition. Whereas for here, this is a broader based community. The biggest, I guess, recognition in a sense is the Orders of Australia. And, um, and that's given across the board to people in, in defence. It's given to people in hospitals, universities, politicians, and businessmen are one of a number of groups. But businessmen in Australia aren't held in the same esteem as they are in the United States because people are sort of more aspirational, money's more a dividing factor. This is a different sort of society. We like to reward um, a broader group of people. So um, they don't have that honor system in the United States, but if you give a lot of money and you have a school or a hospital or something named after you in the community, that, that, that deemed to be successful, and that's how you get your respect. And in fact, boards of not-for-profit organizations in America, I really operate the way foundations do here in the sense of they're really there to choose a CEO and that's it, the end of the policy. And beyond that, they're there to raise funds for their various institutions because the governments, the governments give very little funds to these communities. Where in Australia, the government looks after most of those community organisations. Mm. So it's actually significantly different um, from that point of view. The best system, uh, I'd like, Australian corporates to give more. Um, would I want the government to give less? No, because they look after, there's a much better social welfare net here. There's a much, um, there's a more altruistic approach to life. And I think um, as shown through COVID, where um, people will make sacrifices for the greater good. Whereas in America, it's shown that people will never make any individual sacrifice that, that curtails their freedom, irrespective of the social good. I'm a little bit biased. I've lived in both countries. Um, I came back to Australia, even though I would have made a lot more money living in America. Uh, I prefer the value systems. I prefer it to bring your children up in Australia over that. I don't think America is a great, it's a great model to lead the world and create innovation and um, to get things done because to your point, um, they encourage risk. Uh, you go bankrupt in Australia, a bank won't lend you money again. It's, it's a bit of a, it's, it doesn't help your career here. Whereas in America, you just had a shot and you, you know, you're okay because you, you've actually, um, you've tried and it's not considered failure. We're here, it's, it's considered failure. So it's different, but obviously because we as a family decided to stay and live here and we've had choices, um, we, we prefer this, 
this system and we prefer the value system of Australia. So, um, but I'd still be hopeful that um, corporate Australia, which has benefited from this huge wealth explosion um, over the last 20 or 30 years in this country, which has been absolutely extraordinary. And the amount of money that's, you know, one and a half times the size of the economy in savings, I mean, $3 trillion, there's uh, enormous amount of wealth transfer that will occur in the next generation here because of that wealth explosion and and and, and savings increases. Um, that uh, I think you'll find that um, the Australians now have to contribute a little bit back, um, and governments will have to draw back a bit because their money has to go into other areas. Like it probably, you know, in, in terms of COVID, it's very clear where they have to be focused on. But I think. Governments in Australia just whenever when you're when you're a not-for-profit in Australia and you have a problem you just go to the government and they just give you money. Well, there's got to be a point where you create a like universities have you create a way that you can start to fund yourself. The government can help fund some of your riskier areas. Obviously, mm -hmm. in hospitals, that's an area that governments have to continue to be heavily involved in. But there's a point where you have to get off the drip and you have to sort of start finding a way for yourself mm -hmm. to actually do what your main purpose is, but to find a way that it's um, that it's viable. Um, if I look at NIDA, I mean, two thirds of our money comes from corporates and open programs for children. So we can still have one of the best five, be one of the best five acting schools in the world, but we're, we're more or less self-sufficient. And so you can actually do both. So I think um, there's a, it's a bit of a combination, but I think Australia's should go along that continuum. So whereas people contribute more to these areas, that could probably, in a way, is then give control away from governments and back to back to the people. Um, but uh, so I think that will continue. But it seems to me that we still don't want to lose our, our basic value structure of this country. So, so I think it'll, as I said, I think there'll be more contributions from the community. Um, but uh, uh, it won't get to the extent, it won't change the whole value and society structure to where America is. And in fact, I think from the rest of the world, seeing the way America's handled this virus um, would hopefully see most countries go back to a slightly different model that 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 model doesn't work where the individual is more important than society. It doesn't work in all circumstances. A few questions just about the, the not-for-profit sector that you've kind of opened up there. You know, you would have a lot of experience in there. And, and in, in our business titles, we feature not-for-profit organizations. And, and you, you kind of talked about the explosion of them. And one of the things that, that, that bugs me, rather, is it's nice to see that there are more businesses getting into the not-for-profit and community-based space. But there seems to be a really, really heavy trend now that I'm reading about where effectively a lot of the fundraising is done just to keep themselves alive with bloated staff numbers. So, um, you know, some of the issues in some of these not-for-profits is, you know, they're supposed to be a charitable organization. The CEO of the company is making half a million dollars. You hear about sometimes some of these organizations, you know, maybe as little as 5% of the income is actually being exported into community work. And then oftentimes um, the heavy fundraising is being used for, passive investment vehicles, as you said, so it's being tied up in investments as opposed to, you know, doing work on the ground. Uh, what do you think of, you would have the insights into this? Is, is this as problematic oh, I, as I feel it is? No, I'm not, I'm not sure. Look, there's obviously been some well publicized cases of that. Um, there's some golden, there's a, 
you know, there's Philanthropy Australia and there's a number of, um, of, of institutions, including all the major accounting and law firms that will set the golden standards for this. But administrations in most of these should be less than 10% and as they grow, be far less. There is no question that as these organisations grow, they're attracting better management. So I think uh, that it's been a positive trend to pay CEOs more because we're actually getting people that can move over from private to public to have all those skills. So we're actually getting people with better skills at that level, but they're also looking after much bigger organisations. Um, I mean, even, and, and, it, and in some cases, and, and hopefully, uh, well, not hopefully, I'm just watching that the, the, their activities are getting more and more measurable and measured as more and more money's going into it. And most philanthropic organisations are really careful where they put their money as they've got more money to give. They have professional people that look at each case and they're quite strict on the merits of each case. Um, probably stricter in a way than governments are, but governments are getting more um, accountable but with governments always difficult because on the one hand they want to do things that you know get them a lot of votes and make them popular mm. and on the other hand they want these organizations to be accountable but they're probably because they've got dual purpose whereas people in philanthropic organizations are very specific they don't want their money wasted on what you uh what you've talked about so there have been a couple of high profile cases but in fact they've actually heightened the um the governance in a number of organisations and most of the organisations that I know or I've been involved with or they understand how they work are getting much, much more, much stricter on ensuring the money goes to where it's supposed to go and to the right people. And there's a lot of re legal recourse, there's a lot of standards now. So I think if it, in anything as these organisations have got more sophisticated, that that's improved. So I think, as I said, those high profile cases are exceptions and, and it's great because they're highlighting um, the people want to, they want to understand that if they've, they've given money to something, they want to make sure that that's where it goes to. And that, and, and in the end of the day, as a not-for-profit, you're, you're competing with other not-for-profits for funds. So if you're, mm. if you're not running your organization correctly, you'll end up losing, losing money. The, the other thing, I guess it's a lead into there is talking more generally about CEO pay. And I'm just interested in exploring that because obviously, you know, you, yeah. you, you made your money through this and going public and selling the company. Yeah. And we've talked about, you know, CEO pay within not-for-profits. Um, you've also talked about the value system of, of Australian being more community-based. Uh, so it sort of goes against this, this unbridled, um, ability to make as much money as possible. Do you, ethically, do you think there is sort of a, a ceiling for, for what a CEO should be paid in a company? Um, you know, you talked about the value, but does a, does a CEO of a company warrant a, a $25 million salary plus bonuses in areas like banks, whether or not they're, they're actually um, delivering something at the end of the financial year? Well, I think it's a vexed question in the sense that um, Australia can't be removed from the rest of the world. Um, and so CEO salaries are pegged on a world basis because when you search for CEO, you're not the best person in Australia, but the best person could be living anywhere. Mm. So, um, so I think number one for companies, shareholders, stakeholders, you've got to get the best person for the job. Um, but it's really important that the uh, interests are aligned. So to your point, if, you, if a CEO gets an enormous amount of money, and there's no one else receives any benefit but themselves. Um, nobody would be for that. And that's really the board 
just abdicating their responsibilities to their stakeholders and their shareholders. Uh, so, but if, you know, if the objectives of the company um, are reached, then the CEO should uh, be part of that, depending on their level of contribution. And it varies from company to company, because in some cases, a CEO is the most critical part of the business. In other cases, it's the executive and management team. In some cases, particularly early on, the board's pretty fundamental. So, um, and obviously, you know, companies where the CEO originates the idea and adds enormous value, um, they're worth a lot more, but they normally have equity and skin in the game, so the interests are aligned. Um, but I'm more into CEOs um, having equity as that, uh, so they move in alignment with the other shareholders. Um, but, you know, I recognise the fact you don't want an Enron situation where there's artificial profits and they, you know, then their timing's the most essential thing. It's got to be long-term, it's got to be proven, it's got to be realised. So they have to be in the same position as the shareholders. And uh, it's got to be governed by a really strong, um, a, a really strong governance committee at the board and a very strong CFO, where the results are basically, where you can trust the results. Um, but basically, you don't get your money until the other people get theirs. So you can't have like, you know, overvalued paper profits that a CEO gets a benefit from, leaves the company, and someone else gets the picks up the scraps. Gets the scraps. So it's it's got to be really monitored closely. But at the same time, for Australia to succeed as a country, the best CEOs have got to run our businesses. And if they happen to be uh, not from here but from overseas, so be it. Because you know the reason America does so well in specific industries is they get the world's best in those industries. So. You could argue that Australia's got the best mining executives in certain areas that we're the strongest in. In America, in terms of Silicon Valley or Hollywood or the areas that they're really strong in, they get the best people in the world to just go over there and they're in those companies and there's no... Um, so once you've got the best people um, in those businesses, you'll have to pay them more, but they'll provide the most value and ensures that your country in that area will stay in front of the others. And uh, it, it's very powerful. Um, that part of it. So I think CEO salaries have to be looked at in that context. But to your original point, where the CEO gets a lot of money and the shareholders lose theirs, that won't work on any level. Mm. Uh, tell us about being in business. I mean, your situation is a little bit different. We, we hear about um, a lot of people who, who through family businesses are able to you know, move, move themselves through and, and take it over. But that's yeah. perhaps not an opportunity for a lot of us, but there's a lot of interesting tales in there. And, and when we originally spoke going back maybe about a month or two when we were talking about doing this, there were some really interesting points you brought up because I have my own business, which would be you know, quite small in comparison. But you had talked about issues of um, you know, having a level of balance, not really... Uh, as, as you work through your business, how your role yeah. changes, um, that you're no longer sort of a specialist and that kind of puts you at a detriment and able to, to become an employee again, should anything else happen. Yeah. You talk about some really, really smart issues that when you start in entrepreneurism, you're kind of running all the time and it really takes years to get, to start to understand your financials and understand your position. Can we just kind of open this up broadly and, yeah, and talk sure. about your lessons there? I mean, that's a, a really lengthy question, but my own circumstances, I was in a business and then we had the opportunity of buying the other partners out. I had no experience, but also had no fear. So 
they're, they're really important things. So between my father-in-law and me and the operations, we bought out the other partners. Um, and we were like children in the lolly shops. So between, within three years, we'd, we'd sort of taken a business that had, I guess for our shareholding, 25, 30 million of equity on paper, we turned that into negative 300 million. So that's a real skill, right? So we expanded into huge losses. So then I was faced with the fact of, do I go and do something else? Then who would employ me? Do I start on that career or do I try to find a way to make it work? So um, power is given, power is taken, it's never given. So I thought, I don't want to waste, and we had a committee that made every decision. So I, I, did, I didn't want to waste it. I thought that I could find a solution to it. So I basically put CEO on my business card, the board approved it and even though they didn't really want to, they didn't, and all of a sudden I'll see you. So I just took that role and um, I put myself into that position. And all of a sudden we started making decisions that slowly clawed back that negative 300 million until we sort of made it into something positive. Um, but for that, you have to back yourself. You have to have a real vision. Um, you actually can't look at it as a risk analysis because the risks are just huge. Mm. Um, but I just felt that, that versus going out and starting again, this was a better risk, at least I knew the business. Um, and also when you have a personal guarantee and the rest of it, you've got to start with next to nothing, it sort of gets harder. Um, but, but we were less than nothing. So you really then have to back yourself. So there's sort of traits of entrepreneurs that you have to back yourself, you have to have confidence, you work around the clock. Um, but anyone else looking at that situation would have thought there was no hope, but we found hope when there was none. And then we slowly, slowly, we reduced our bank debt by getting some banks to buy the other banks out. We, we bought out our partners in a successful business, but we started to build a new business, which was these multiplexes. And we just started making more money out of the business. We reduced labor. We took on the union movement. We increased the money we got from ancillaries like food and advertising. Uh, we went back and reduced rent. So we restructured the whole business and slowly, slowly we found that you know, from a, a negative um, net worth position, a negative cash flow position, we started to get to break even, then we saw small positives. And once you start to see the small positives, your timing has to be pretty perfect to find solutions. So at the time, um, a lot of people wanted to buy us for next to nothing. So we hung in there and then we found a partner that would take my family out and would give us an incentive to rebuild the business and, um, and solve a family problem that we had, but also all the people that try to buy us and ensure that the family ended up with nothing. We held against them to try to steal the business from us in that sense. And then we found a solution. Then we had new shareholders um, that gave us some capital. Um, we're used to running lean and mean and tight. We'd found ways to get more out of the business than basically anybody in the world in our industry. So we had to think outside the square. And then from that, we could start to, to build a business with new shareholders. And then after that, we took, we used that money. We had the ability to then go public because we could, we could, we had a broad, because we, we were in a business where we could make more out of that business than anyone else. So then we could take that expertise globally. We learned a lot from America. They learned from us. And so then we could start developing other markets and then we could get public shareholders, you know, involved in our company. But there's a lot of dark nights. There was a lot of nights where you couldn't see the future. There was a lot of times you get very little sleep. Um, There's no balance in your life. Um, my family and I were separated. They were in Melbourne, I was in Sydney. 
Originally, I spent four or five days by myself. I had two different management teams, one team during the day to run the business, one team at night to work with the banks and just find solutions. Um, I had a lot of people that were very faithful, supportive and loyal to what we were trying to do. We had one direction which was governed by me across three different companies, two public and well, actually four companies, one, uh, two private companies and two public. Um, and we just, and we saw, and we made it and we made it with the most finite of margins with, uh, at the end of the day, it was a, the reason that we the last reason that there was a new banker at State Bank of New South Wales that saw what we were doing, saw what we had to do to make the banks happy, walked into the Commonwealth Bank and said, if you want this proposal to, if you want to go on this proposal, we're putting the company into chapter 11 administration receivership um, and it's all over. So they then panicked. And anyway, they gave us the money to buy out our partners, Paramount Universal, which is where the cash flow was. And, and that gave us, and from then on, we sort of survived. So it was that one phone call, that guy that started the week before, that read the document, really unusual, that went to the bank and forced the situation, gave us, I can't remember, 10 or $12 million to buy out our partners in the, you know, the most successful business we had. So they didn't take half the cash flow. And they thought they could buy us for nothing. And we had a month to come up with the money and would, the conditions that we came up with the money were not acceptable to the bank who really were the, a major shareholder in the business. They owned a lot more of the business than anyone else did. Um, and, and because of that, we then survived. So we had that person, I still remember his name, Andrew Moon, very imposing guy, six foot seven and hovered over everybody and got his way because he had the guts in a bank to sort of say, this is what we're doing. And everyone then stood back and said, righto. Anyway, then we worked through it. So the bank did well. They took a share in our business. They did very well out of that. Um, and all the, all the naysayers started to disappear. We started to see some positiveness. But out of that, because I guess I conducted the orchestra there, people believed in me. I mean, I was 34 or 35 years of age. I took over as MD, which enabled that to happen. Um, and you get an enormous amount of confidence um, that you can actually out of, and you create a whole range of new ideas. But what happens is you have to have people that follow you. And any entrepreneur in any business, um, people have got to believe in that person. So to do that, you have to believe in yourself. And then they will follow you because people want answers, they want solutions, they want a pathway in life because, and they will follow people. And um, I mean, you know, that's why Trump's got such a following in that sense. You know, it's just, he gives them a path. Now, a lot of other people think the path's a bit sort of whatever, but for people with little hope in their lives, he gives them a path that they can understand. So any leader has to give people paths and particularly because why would someone stay with you when there's other things they could do? There's a brighter pastures on the other side. Now, from a personal point of view, it's an easier decision you know, to get back to your other question, because once you have that level, once you're used to running a business yourself, used to having that level of autonomy, your skills become much more general than specific. You actually become unemployable. So then you have to become an entrepreneur because no other solution, you know, you can't go in academia. You can't, you know, you can't, you're not going to join the public service. Nobody will want you and nobody will want you in any companies either because they think you've got too much of an opinion and you won't follow and you won't be part of a structure. So once you realize that that's the sort of person you are, then you better find a way. But once you've found a way, you have to get people to follow you because you can't do it by yourself. And 
at the end of the day, um, I don't, you know, we've only got, we work on very small staff. I'm still very dominant in every aspect of all the businesses, but it works because you don't have those layers of bureaucracy to slow you down. Mm. And as long as everyone contributes and, and hopefully nobody gets sick, um, um, we use a lot of IT uh, against people to make sure we can automate things so we have really good information. Um, you can uh, you can then get ahead of your competition, uh, and then you can you don't have any bottlenecks in your decision making, and you take out all the obstacles to success. So, um, and at the end of the day, even big businesses or governments are really run by one or two people. Just the way things work otherwise they just don't and if you've got factions fighting each other you've got no hope and any businesses or government or company that's got one direction will end up being much more successful than people even if they're two competing forces that are both valuable um, once you've got um, a lack of process that you can't make decisions that obstacle you just go backwards um, so I mean that's sort of how it worked for me. And then it's basically, I've continued that way of doing things um, across a number of different organisations and it's been effective and it's been helpful, hopefully. And uh, it's most, what I'm most proud of in a sense is that pretty well every organisation I've been with still thriving today and still continues even under different management, whatever, but they, they, they've continued. So, um, but that believing in yourself forming a commitment, going in one direction, listening to people along the way, but then, you know, benevolent dictatorship's always good. And then, uh, and, and then people sort of following you and using their skills and working together. I mean, I know it's a bit simplistic, but so, you know, government doesn't have, I mean, it's one of the problems that we have in Australia now, if we had national unity versus the state, we'd be, well, what we would do through COVID next year as a country will far surpass what we're going to do as people look after their own sexual interests. So, um, um, you know, in short, that's a sort of business summary and it's helped as we've gone through different issues with the Ackle Hotel Group when that went into debt and I had different partners there. But once we formed a, a, a purpose and a one way to get through it, we got through that very well and it's helped in a number of other circumstances in different areas. I want to ask you about going public because this seems for, for any company, the, the structure seems to be, you know, start a company, grow it up to mass, get it to a point where you can get it to go public, make your money out of it that way, and then potentially exit. But before, before doing that, um, you know, for a lot of people, they, they will be running probably small businesses like myself who are listening yeah. to this. Do you have, um, are there any milestones or sort of key steps that you remember along the way that, that were light bulb moments for you? Um, well, getting saved and working through that first period. Um, look, in every one of these businesses, there's sort of light bulb moments. I mean, but if I, to go back to your question on going public, in Australia, don't go public. It's not a good solution. The only good mid-cap companies in Australia, um, it's very difficult to keep growing as a public company because you just can't create the margins necessary. So if you're a worldwide, you're the best in the world, like we are in mining, no problem. If you've got a protected oligopoly as we have with the banks, no problem being public. Um, if you're in technology where you've got some huge lead like Lassian or Afterpay, be public. But for most businesses, and there's a lot of floats coming up, 
um, where there's not that many barriers to entry. The Australian market is too small um, to be public. So really the only reason to go public is to liquidate shareholders and make sure that if you're the starting person in that, that you, you take some money off the table if your model can't be leveraged to continue to expand. Because the Australian market is very finite. Um, so that'd be my general thing. And so really to go public, um, it's, it, it, it's really, if you're a small business, it, it's re you must take some money off the table. Um, that'd be my sort of advice. Um, in our case, we had public shareholders, we had private equity funds with Hellman and Friedman um, and Lendlease for our major shareholders. And for them, they wanted to, uh, we would either have gone to a private sale because from their point of view, um, they hold these investments for an average of three to five years, a little bit longer today because private equity models changed. Um, so they needed to have a, an event um, where they could liquefy their investment. Um, from my own point of view, I'd have been happy continuing with them, but it wouldn't have been good for their shareholders because mm. we had plenty of capital. I could work in a private thing. We could then, you know, we could do make long-term decisions for the betterment of the company, not just improve by a quarter. Um, so it's a better situation to grow the long-term value of the business. Today, with a lot of the private equity funds, um, they're better businesses they're keeping. If you look at uh, Helen Friedman, for example, they're keeping them between funds. Um, because you lose so much value going public and regulatory risk. Uh, and you just can't grow the business in a way that maximizes the benefit of the shareholders longer term in a number of different instances. So you have to be really careful when you make that decision. You have to have a very specific purpose and rationale for doing so. And if your business has still got a huge runway ahead of it, then access to that capital is, um, is good. And then you as an individual should use that access grow the business, but ensure that you have some diversification, you've kept some other assets. As COVID and all these things show that diversification, the answer as an investor, is you can't get all things right. And black swan events, you know, you, you just get stuck. If you've got one investment, if, if you're non-diverse, if you're in one business and it gets caught in the COVID and you can't do much about it for a number of years, then diversification is the only thing that can save you. But um, so, I wouldn't say going public, and I've been public three times. Um, it's uh, as a mid-cap business in Australia, it's quite fraught. So if you can't use that as a basis to go to the next at least five, ten years of expansion, don't do it. And if you're at a mature part of your cycle, then you then have to pass that business to someone else, or at least diversify yourself and take some money off the table. I think that's really mm. vital. Now. In today's world, um, you can bring in partners, which you may not. You can get bank funding, which albeit restricted in Australia at these interest rates, you'd have to have a look at. And private equity, which is a growing part of the Australian business landscape, um, is a good way for you to uh, you know, at least build your business before you go public, so you're not using all your own capital. And um, they're all better milestones to do private first before you either go for a larger trade sale, merge with someone else, uh, or go and, or go public, which are different ways of you know um, of liquidating or not even liquidating, harvesting part of your business because to have that concentration risk is pretty severe once you've got a family and you've got other things. And uh, if you can put yourself in a position as a small business, 
uh, where you can grow it with someone else's capital there's other ways to do it and where you can actually or use some of the capital you generate from the business there's a point where you don't want to put that back in your business put it into something else at least it gives you some diversity and goes back to one of the first things i said that um you've got to get to a point in any business where not all your money goes back in the business and some goes just to diversify and give you some cash flow outside the business because particularly in smaller businesses where there's less barriers to entry it's just a, it's a higher risk and uh in the you have to do it but saying that you can't build a decent business up um, under 10 years i don't think it's um all these overnight miracles take 20, 10 or 20 years to get there and you do have to do that sacrifice in the beginning but there's a certain point where you're big enough to bring other shareholders in big enough for you to diversify and and you have to make that decision yourself where you stop pouring all your own money time and effort into business and also as businesses get bigger you have to have a look at your own level of skill sets and whether you're the per you're the right person to be in that job mm. uh, as the business gets bigger and i've had a number of one case now where the originator of the business came back as a chairman which was very good but found corporate guys that had run larger businesses in his space in a corporate atmosphere and they're actually adding value they're taking the business to the next level and it's been a win-win for everybody and that's something you have to get accustomed to and a lot of entrepreneurs can't get used to not being the boss um not not so much not being the boss because you can still control things but not running everything um so my advice to all of them is get a really good cfo that keeps you balanced so you can still do the entrepreneurial stuff and then after the ceo get a really good general general manager and empower them to run the day-to-day thing so you can look at the bigger picture um but all these moments come at different times for different businesses and it depends on your own skill set and um but it's something that as you grow you have to keep in mind so part harvesting full harvesting diversity different skill sets these are all things you have to consider as you're growing your business because nothing goes on forever and, mm. and every business and also every business has a period where it's flat or it's gone down that you've got to live through and uh and public particularly if you're public i mean they don't have any tolerance for you having two years to sort of um sort you yourself know, out sort yourself out you know restructuring your business they just they just put their money elsewhere because they've got somebody else's money and they've got to make it work for somebody else. You know, mm. they've got to make it work. So they're not going to sit there while you're doing that. They might sit there six months behind when your share price drops and then they pick up the timing. But if it's a two, two year exercise while you're restructuring, they won't be there or at very low prices. You had said something quite interesting there. Uh, few minutes ago where you'd said when you go public oftentimes you don't get the value within your company i was interested to hear about that because oftentimes you hear about companies going public so that they can get the income or get the you know the the ceo pay that's tied to the stocks that they have so you believe that more often than not though actually these companies end up being undervalued when they're listed well i'm not saying that they're undervalued what i'm saying is that you can't generate the same value um now that because it's uh there's a for a small company that starts with regulation then it starts with the fact that every quarter has got to be above the quarter before so you get all these sorts of factors now that doesn't mean if the market's in a buoyant mood when you float you might get a huge uplift mm. but you've got to take it over two to three years that gets balanced out over time and um uh over time um 
I'm not saying you won't get the value if you sell out at the right time. No, if you can, you know, if you can control your timing to that level. But what I would say is that looking at good companies, um, their ability to create value because there's just less leakage in dividends, um, less leakage in terms of regulation, uh, you know, various controls in terms of, you know, the amount of other things that you have to do today in a public company from diversity to a whole range of factors that don't necessarily build direct wealth. That if you have the capital, I, I would, there's a strong argument, you just get less things. There's less other responsibilities as a corporate, both fiduciary, governance, um, dividends, that you can plough that money back in, but you should be able to create more value and there's, without that short-termism. But there's a number of different factors. So, um, so you've got to make your own decision about what sort of financial structure will optimise the benefit of the company long-term. And my only other advice was that if it's a small business where it's not, not too many, or medium-sized call it, where there's not sufficient barriers to entry, um, you've always got to work out at what point you take some money out, diversify, bring some extra skills in. Um, but there's no question that you can create more value um, and it's different, you can realise it in different ways through private equity, trade sale or whatever, but you can create more value if you have enough capital privately in most industries. Mm. The, I guess the, the business gurus that, that we read about nowadays, you, you know, online, there's a whole bunch of people selling yourself to go out and be an entrepreneur. And they talk about, you know, um, going into private investment to build your business. You would probably, you know, you'd know a lot about this space. What, what is your tips for, uh, I mean, if you have simply an idea, you know, what are the steps to find and develop uh, investor equity in your business? Well, just to finish off that last point, that the private market and the bond market and the private equity market is now far bigger than the public market. So there's many ways of accessing capital. Uh, and, and I think the regulations have really made it very difficult that you can only, and so a lot of these other vehicles, you know, um, are there. And with money so inexpensive now, it's got to go somewhere. Um, for yourself, um, if you've got an idea, um, I think the first, it's got to be a good idea. So that's up to others how good it is and it's got to be scalable. And then you have to have enough capital to develop it because in the beginning, there's a lot of development time where you're not going to make money till you build it up to something that works. Mm. So you have to, so then you've got to work out what sort of partners you want to have in the beginning. And some of them will be strategic partners where they give you a long-term exit. Some will be people that are dependent on you. So that way, uh, you know, you, you supply them with something they need. So that's it's in both of your interests. So that can be a partner that does that. You can have financial partners that uh, may help you exit or whatever, but not always with a financial partner, your interests aligned. Um, but at least in the short term, they can be very aligned. So it just depends where they sit and you sit. Um, and then, of course, you've got various partners that bring in different talents and skills as various strategies. But... Um, in a very short space of time, if you're an individual with an idea, if you want to build, grow, and leverage it, you will need some sort. You'll need to create some partnerships and some, um, well, you know, varying between financial, structural collaborations. Where you're weak, or what you do is you say, where would I want this business to be in five and ten years, and what are the obstacles? We start looking at how do you overcome those obstacles to get there, 
and then you look at what capital, labour, other resources you need to be able to achieve that goal. So that's sort of how you do it. Now I'm taking the assumption that your idea is terrific, it's highly leverageable, the market size is much bigger than what you think it is, that the market size is a certain amount. You feel that you can get to this position in the market, it costs you that much to run it, that's the sort of reward you get for developing that uh, business to that size. And then you've got to work out, well, what's stopping me getting there? And then you go through and you just, and you basically go through all the stops and knock them out. And then you have a, a free run to get there and then you stage it. And then you stage it in sort of, you know, you have your 100 day plans, 200, three years, you know, one year, two years, five years. And then you start monitoring it and, and controlling it. But you don't spend your whole life planning. You then got to execute. And at each level, you have different obstacles you've got to overcome. So you might get it to a certain point and at that point you need more capital. So you go, well, what's the most efficient way of getting that capital? And what will ensure that the business grows in value the most? So what's the best financial structure for it? And then what are the relationships you need to ensure that your income is ongoing and sustainable? So you may have to form some partnerships. Sometimes they might cost you some margin in the beginning, but they underpin your business to go out and get higher margin with, you know, with, with, with other people. But it's, uh, you know, they're, um, but, you know, a lot of this stuff is okay as long as you believe in yourself, you have faith and you've got enough money because rule number one in any business is don't run out of money. Mm. You might be the greatest genius of all time. You run out of money and all of a sudden your whole life is trying to get, you, you can't do anything. So then you're absolutely stymied. Whereas if you've got enough money and that includes not wasting it, you've actually got time and you do need time to make the right decisions. So, you know, these are well-planned, coordinated uh, decisions, but it's got to start with a dream, an ambition, an objective. And then you've got to have exactly what I said before, what, what we had at Hoyts, you've got to have a team of people that believe in you. Because if you don't have the people, you haven't got the skill sets to compete. And you've got to have a team that's competitive with anyone else that's in your space. So you, so one is the idea in your space. And then the next, really, what stops most people, a lot of people have great ideas. I mean, I've never had brilliant ideas. I'm more like someone else has had the idea, but I just know how to execute, you know? And I know that that's my skill set. So the few times that I've followed my own ideas, um, they're not that good, you know, because I'm not an idea dreamer, you know? Other people dream. right. But if something's broken, I'm terrific to go and work out how to fix it, you know? Or something can be built from this to that, that I can dream, you know? And that I can see the size. I can see what the competition's doing. I can see where we can get ahead. I can see where I can get people to believe in me, both give, both to support me financially or with their time, and um, and then you're all on a mission. But you know, and every and you really got to have a place that's unified, coordinated. People are happy in their jobs, and people aren't. You know, because this site's not being just kills any business. So uh, to do that, you've got to be quite strong. And as I said, leadership is taken. It's not given. It's not a not a given mm. thing. So if people come in your office and you keep not saying, well, that's a good idea, but so is that one, and I'll tell you in a week, or I can't decide, or I'm not sure, you're just not going to get the traction that you need. And that's, nobody. number one, people won't give you money, because they've got other places to give it to, and secondly, people won't give you their time, effort, their energy, and their, and their competencies, and their skill levels. So um, it's managing those two, but you've got to be very focused in the beginning. You can't have, the balance of life goes, because your brain gets completely taken up by how you can build this into something. And the people around you got to be very patient. So you need a lot of support from people at home, your children, your family, your friends, 
because you can't be all things to all people. So if you want to be that focused, as I said, it's a 10 year exercise to get a business to a level where you know it'll work or not work in most instances. Um, and so, you know, you Can I just ask you, you've mentioned that twice now, that 10 year period, um, as we had talked earlier in our last chat, you had talked about the issues of finding your financial position. Can you just, a lot of people aren't going to understand that. There will probably be some people sitting at home in their basement or bedroom saying, I've got this idea. They don't even have an idea of where they would approach someone for equity. And you're now telling them on top of that, it's going to take 10 years to find out if their idea is even feasible. Can you just kind of break that up into chunks in terms of how that, that works? Okay. Well, let's even look at it with the zoo, because maybe people can relate to that. So people came to us five or six years ago and said, I want to build a zoo in Sydney. Now it's called Sydney Zoo now. Now, it wasn't very well embraced because you go around to the financial areas, most people are going high risk, speculative, another one of those weird tourist attractions that's not going to work. Um, Where do you get the animals? They just look at all the risks. Anyway, they came to me and I said, oh, I think it can work. Now, but I'm going, but everyone else thinks it can't work. Um, so then what I did was I said, all right, well, look, I will, I'll put my name to it, but it is risky. So I don't want a majority shareholding. I just want enough to be on the board, a little bit more. And so it's meaningful and I'll put a lot of time into it because I think it's a good idea. And then I'll, anyway, so what happened is when I went there, the, it, it then got fully subscribed within six weeks, but I didn't want responsibility of running it. As other people said, well, if Peter thinks it's okay. He knows this area of, you know, um, of what brings people more than some in sport, Hoyts, all these things. That's been my area. Um, maybe, so we'll back it. So all of a sudden these people had a back. So we got it backed. And then we had to start building it. And then, of course, it cost long, took longer, cost more. But luckily enough, we had a shareholder base that could afford to go through those difficult periods. Um, we had people in the beginning that had the vision to build this thing, their vision was a good one. And we had obstacle after obstacle. So we had to change a number of the people. But bit by bit, we sort of got there, but we never ran out of money. Um, so now we're six years into this project and we'll know in the next two or three how good it's gonna be, but so far it's been pretty good. But we didn't run out of money. We got to the point where, God, we're halfway through it. We'll have to finish it now. And we just hope that it works. Um, but we just had this thing that we think it can work, you know? And so we just, and luckily then we recruited, as it got bigger, we needed different executives. So a lot of other people thought it would work. So we managed to hang on, you know, and they took, everyone took sacrifices here. We managed to find people um, that thought it was a great idea that then came in. So we increased that. Then of course we had COVID and we had the fires and we had the floods. So it sort of helps with zoos to keep them open because more people come. So then we had to close it down for three months. Then of course the animals, it's not like an organization don't pay rent to, the animals got to eat. So then we had to feed the animals. So nobody was coming. So we, you know, we got a lot of government support and uh, and we got a lot of support, but we just got support from the whole community. So all of a sudden people backed us with this impossible project and we've got through it. So, but I won't know if I'll get my money back in this project. And now it looks like we'll get a, a fair bit yeah, it looks like we're providing some value and people are embracing it and they like it. So, and I remember even speaking to our managing director, I said, look, you know, it's fraught 
the whole, it's, it's taken longer and it's cost more, but I sort of half assumed it would to some degree. But I know we've built a great zoo and I know that to get it up, to get all the animals we need, to get all the experiences that we want people to have there, the interactions to get, you know, it'll, it'll take a bit longer than we thought. But now, but then we just made sure that we had enough capital to keep running it through this period, which we've got. And now we've got a real chance at this because we've worked it through the most difficult period of, you know, having difficulty getting animals through COVID, having difficulty with nobody coming there, having weather conditions, having three months we've closed, having restrictions on the amount of people we can get there. But I'm now confident that the people that are invested in that will see their money. And then to go forward before they sort of make money, and there's more to it than making money in this project, there's a whole social dividend to the community. But I think the whole thing will pay off, but it will have taken 10 years. Mm. And it will have taken 10 hard years. So during that period, there was many times that we thought, will it work or won't it? And all of us sort of came to the conclusion independently as we kept putting more money into it, that this project will work. I mean, yes, it cost more. Yes, it took longer. Yes, it was harder to get a lot of the things that we thought because it's a startup project. But we just had this long-term belief in it. And that was just in our intuition, you know. And, and we wanted to believe that it would work once we put the money in, but we genuinely believe that it could work. And then we, and then we, we realised that we were a bit short on executive talent, so then we, we augmented the CEO with some new people. And piece by piece, and then the bank started believing us, the government started believing us, and then the people started to turn up. So the people believed us got terrific um, social media comment. And we're starting to have confidence that we can, so now we're at a point where we think, well, we may be even able to be expanded a little bit faster than what we thought a year or two ago and still still keep all the stakeholders happy. Now, what makes you think that when for the first year of this project, not one person would finance it, we're at a point where they won this tender and the government had to extend the term of, the, you know, of getting it financed uh, because the lease time was running out. We had like 12 months to put the project together, find the finance. So the government gave us a three-month extension, I think, because we were that close. Um, so I don't know, as I said, it started with obviously the people that originated the idea believed in it. I believed in the project and I wasn't sure to, and I believed in them in part, but I just felt there was a much bigger project to execute. So there would be a few pitfalls on the road, but that's 40 years of experience. Um, and then we had a, guy, you know, a couple of people on the board that were really helpful and we got the right team together. And you know, now we've had a group of people in one direction working hard you know we had a couple of competitors being taronga and featherdale it's all public that held us up in courts for a number of years made our lives hard you know bought some areas where we could have got some animals and brought them away from us and not help not helped us across the board but that's okay i mean we're potential competitors for them mm. um we just had this belief and we all had it it wasn't just one person and we just thought god between us we've only got three or four skills we need a few more like it's a complicated exercise you know, we found a terrific guy on social media. We had a great guy that could, you know, negotiate all the contracts we had. Then we found really good people to help us with government. And then we improved our standing in the zoological community. Um, so we started, we had a great finance person, you know, and th that we recruited. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's like 15 people that are all rowing in the one direction. And all of a sudden, this thing's cooking, you know, and all of a sudden, the people like it. So, but how you get there, it's something deep down in your own psyche. I mean, people are either entrepreneurs or they're not. You know, most of my friends looked at it a different way. They said, look, 
you're 66. You don't need speculative investments. <laughs> and even though you want to give this as a great contribution to the community, maybe this is something in your life that may not benefit in the long term. Maybe it might shorten your life. But I just didn't see it that way. And my kids didn't see it that way. And my family, because they just thought, what a terrific project that we be part of. So we just did it. Now, if I were to put that money into bonds or something else and boring stocks and all, you know, put all that money in after pay, I'd be richer today, right? Mm. Um, but that's, you are what you are and you can only be what you can be. So I think part of anything in life, including this sort of stuff, is a, a deep understanding of yourself and what you can do and what you can't do. Um, so hopefully that sort of helps people as they're sitting in there coming up with these dreams. But it's, there's many points where the objective evidence is against you. Entrepreneurs in general fail. There's a very, most entrepreneurial small businesses fail in the first three years. A lot of my friends tried to be entrepreneurs and they just never made it. Um, they would have been far better off working for someone else, but they saw themselves in a different light than where they really were. And they would have actually probably had better outcomes. So you have to decide where you fit. A lot of people are great number twos, not number ones. Um, and these are all personal decisions that yes, you can get help from your, you know, the, the, your true friends and your spouse and your family. But ultimately it's you yourself deep down have got to have that understanding of what you can do without setting limits about what you can't do. And then you've got to be positive. Now, some people just born negative. No matter how good something else, they just see, That's true. They can see it's terrible. So of course, they're not going to be great entrepreneurs. So you actually have to be positive. Like negative looks after itself, you know, like yeah. bad things will happen. You know, you get these black swan, a whole range of things help. But if you have a positive attitude to life, now, I always say I'd rather have a terrible business in the hands of someone good than a great business in the hands of someone who's not good because they will wreck it and the other person will, will survive and find solutions. Mm. So, um, so, but this gets back to your own DNA and your own DNA is what drove you early on to do things that other people decided were too risky. Then in my situation where it was partly me and partly the position I was put in, and I just always looked at it and I said, if I got out of that, I mean, as a financial review said um, in the Chanticleer article one year is that this is a Houdini effort. And it was like, there's no way known we should have survived. But once you survive those, you know, well, you can get through anything. You just, you know, you just got to find sometimes a different way. You've got to find a different path. You've got to find, you just got to find solutions. Now, some people that just terrifies them. And I'd rather go back on the golf course and take another few strokes off their handicap. For yeah. me, I'd rather have my handicap higher because I don't look at that as a high aim. Let <laughs> me take off so I can be with my friends. Sure. And that extra hours would just be, I'm going, God, I'm wasting my life here because you know, to get that six-foot putt in or miss it, which kills you when you miss it, but if you don't play all the time, you're going to miss it. Yeah. I'd rather do something that helps other people, helps what I'm doing, because I just find that more fun. You know, that's for me sport. But for a lot of other people, it just drives them to an early grave. So you just got to, <laughs> you know, you just got to make a personal decision. So... Anyone who's listening to this, it's, at the end of the day, we all look inside ourselves, you know, elite athletes, everyone that gets to a level has insecurities, has negative thoughts, has the same fears as everyone else, but they just say, look, I'm just going to give it a shot, you know? And it always sort of couched mine in the, in the terms of, well, and whenever I've been deep down, I realise that I'm completely unemployable. Now, I have had jobs in the past. I've worked for the government and the Kodak, but I just feel long-term, my personality wouldn't have fitted those bureaucracies, but, you know, a different set of circumstances, would I have survived? 
I suppose yes, because survivors survive, but it's not the ideal for someone like me and the entertainment, sport, arts, social area. That that's where I shine. You know, you can't. Mm. I wouldn't be good in investment bank. You know, uh, where money's the only thing. Um, everything's measured in dollars and spreadsheets. I'd rather someone else do the spreadsheets, or I'll be putting my arm around someone and and sort of being positive and making them to perform to be the best they can be. That's where I see myself. And but everyone's got their own skill sets. I, I, I've still got a lot of questions. I'm sure that we could go on for hours and hours more, but I'll, I'll ask you one thing before we, we finish up today. And that is about um, originally when we were speaking about a month ago, um, you had told me you had the opportunity to buy into Netflix and turned it down, which I think is kind of an interesting tale because I remember when they originally moved into Australia, they were mail away DVD orders. And that was still when we had still had retail stores for VHS and DVD before they became the, the streaming platform. So how did, how did the opportunity present itself to you at the time? Well, um, the way we could have bought on Netflix was we had video easy and we could have replicated it in Australia, but in Australia, I couldn't see it work. I couldn't see the postal service, you know, and obviously it's quite current now everyone knows all about Australia Post this week. Um, I couldn't see that working in Australia and it sort of worked for them in New York and San Francisco because they're really dense markets. Mm. So I couldn't see it. And then of course, when it went public, um, we could have, I could have personally invested. I mean, that's an industry I was supposed to know something about. I mean, we had video was, we had it as part of Hoyts. We had video then, I owned Video Easy, so I was in a prime position. Um, I was concerned about product origination because, you know, they went, once they started the streaming, which they were ahead of everyone else, and then that sort of worked. But I knew that they had to get products. So in the beginning, because they had the first services that they could stream everyone else's product. But after a while, you could realise that any one of the major studios could buy a streaming service and start up their own. So I couldn't see them working then. So I got that piece wrong because they have to go onto Netflix because I just had so much population and I was so much faster and so much ahead of the game and their research was so much better than these studios that took them a while. Then they went into originating their own product and I thought, well, that's also fraught with risk because you have so many lost leaders. So I'm still at a point where I'm not a Netflix fan. <laughs> okay. But of course I've got it so wrong because now they're so expensive they can't be taken out. Because ideally they'd be on the Apple platform because instead of 150 million subscribers, they'd have 2 billion. But, you know, they're just so expensive that they have to continue on their own. The cost of making their own product has really hurt them in the last period because every studio, the problem is once you have a lot of competition in that space, you survive on your lost leaders. They set up the crown, which will open next week. It'll be a huge success. They get a lot of subscription out of that. But they, um, a lot of their product, you know, now that it's competing with Disney Plus and Amazon, whatever, it's, it's getting more and more competitive. Um, but, you know, don't listen to me because these people have done brilliantly. They've been a step ahead of the curve of everyone in every way. But as they've taken risks, they've found ways of getting their subscriber base up, having huge reserves of cash, being able to produce, which is controls their product, but is the most... Um, it's, it's the highest risk part of the operation. Um, and still to me, 150 million is good, but you know, um, look, it's, it is good when you compare it to studios and the amount of theaters they sold to and whatever, and it's a huge business. So um, I had the same chance as anyone else. I couldn't invest in it directly, but 
you know, watching this thing escalate up, me being in the business and getting it wrong every time, um, uh, you know, yeah, I just looked at what happened with studios and how they all started having to become part of bigger conglomerates. They couldn't survive producing on their own. It was only when they had theme parks or hardware or something else they could survive. And obviously Fox merged into Disney because uh, they didn't... You, um, do yeah, you think so they're, they're going to... I guess Netflix... Um, yeah, don't listen to me. Go on, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, do you think ultimately they're going to collapse back into themselves? Because it feels like digital streaming was supposed to be able to get one subscription to get you all the content. But you've now, as you said, you've got Netflix, Apple TV in the horror space. There's Shudder. There's now the Disney Channel uh, in Australia. You've got KO for sports. Like you're, you're going back to a basic cable package, but everything's more expensive these days. Well, I think what's happened with Netflix is in the old days, the difficulty of competing as a new company and making it, they acquired a few independent companies and making your own product is that the library's worth a lot of money. So any studio would get into video later than anyone else, particularly Disney with all their old cartoons, they could bring up all their old product. Mm -hmm. The old product's not worth as much because if you're going to watch something to do with the royal family, you're going to watch the crown versus some older product. So the older product's worth a bit less because people want to be current. There's so much new stuff, you can't even watch the old stuff. Mm. But their ability to produce, and even during COVID, it's been, been amazing. Um, and the ability to build a library. But I do see um, that more and more people will be in the game. And so the difficulty is, is that and then to pay per month when you can watch something in a weekend, then turn it off, then put it when you want to watch the next thing, to me has got some risks. Like it's really hard to build your subscriber base because people aren't, people say, what did I watch on Netflix this year? I watch four things. Well, why should I pay each month for that? I'd rather yeah. pay per what I watch and I can do that myself by turning on and off. So, um, but I don't know enough about the statistics, but I do know that as as that area gets more complicated, what happens? The same thing up in the studios, you have to pay the stars more, you've got to pay more for your product because more people want it. And the difference today is it's a global game. See, whereas 20, 30 years ago, American theaters were 50 or 60% of the, the business, and then television was a bit less and cable even less, and then video replaces. So you've lost video and DVD. Theaters, up important but not critical because what COVID shown is you can go straight as Disney's doing with Mandalorian and some other things you can go straight to streaming because you've got a worldwide audience um, but televisions are also 90 inches now yeah so you got all of that and I think it's not a social experience television um, so the movie theaters will survive but American movie theaters are going to they're all a lot of them are going to go to chapter 11 yet the Chinese theaters are going through the roof so um, the control, so you really have to, have, you have to get into China and the only way you can really get into China is not through movie theaters, you've got huge, um, you've why got are they sectors. booming over there? Because they, uh, they're not, they're booming on their own films as much because American films are restricted. Remember there's, um, restricted, the restricted number of films that can be produced there, but mm. because they've got a middle class, it's, they've got their own product. They've got a middle class that's coming up, it's moving into the cities. And so they're at a different stage of their progression. So now right. we get a, a film in China will take more than it will take in America. So, um, mm. but the American studios can't get all their films in there. So it's part of this trade sort of um, 
uh, part of the trade issues. Um, I don't know if it's language, but it's more just restricted. So, um, so Netflix can get into China. Um, that does help. Um, so the business has changed, but it's definitely more competitive and, um, and producing your own product is problematic and it costs a lot of money to have that level of control. But, but then you have, you decide who gets it. So at least if it's your own product, then you can only have it on your own platform. So the real question then is the same as goes back to studios that used to own movie theaters is that can Netflix make something and only survive on its own platform or does it have mm. to go onto the Apple platform, have to go onto maybe Facebook in the longer term, not now because they don't do that streaming, but go on to, would Disney have them? So these are things still got to be worked out, but as you get more competition, the business model does change. But that would still be beneficial because HBO and Showcase ended up, did they not increase their business by licensing out their titles like Game of Thrones? Oh, completely. And because exactly right. And what happens is they might start off on their own platform for a period of two, three months, then they move on to everyone's. Mm. And for everyone else, it makes it easier for them to keep their subscriptions going because people know there's everyone's product on it. So when Apple started, it had a unique situation in music and in film is that everyone went on the Apple platform because it was the only platform, you know, and then even the Netflix product used to go on the Apple platform. So it's, uh, but as Apple now providing their own music because they're competing against Spotify. So at the end of the day, so you go back to, well, what do you want to control? The software more than the platforms. Because once you've got the software, you can put it on anyone's platform. You've got a better chance of getting your money back. So maybe, some of this vertical integration, so then you may have to specialize, you're either software or you're providing the platform. Apple now used to be a hardware company, but now it's a cloud, Yeah, it's a platform business. Amazon used to be a distribution company, but now it's a, so as these businesses sort of change their modus operandi, as their space becomes more competitive, they have to specialize in which area they're in, but they have the advantage of being global which yes. you couldn't do. I mean, go back 30 years ago until the movie theaters were built. Remember there was no movie theaters in the world outside America, uh, multiplexes. There was none in Europe of any dimension. There was none in Asia. There was not much in South America. And then Australia started in 86, but for 20, 30 years, America really had all the multiplexes bar a couple in some European countries. Mm. So therefore you had to wait till the build out, you got money, but now with streaming, you can get to the world's, you can leverage your business, which is one of the things I said about starting a business. You can start after pay in, in your, you know, as Nick did in his, um, you know, above his sort of, uh, in yeah. his apartment in Sydney. Yeah. And now he's a world best business or like Atlassian started, or, you know, like all Texas instruments started in garages and what the way Apple started. So you can all of a sudden, you know, you can hit the globe and you can hit the globe during a pandemic. So that means um, you can get faster, bigger, quicker, but so you've got a little bit of space till people catch you up because your business is so much larger. And then once they catch you up, then you, you know, the jury's out how much you have to specialize, how much you have to be in one business or another, but like in all, no different than any other economy. If you see it before anyone else and you move to the new space, then you can keep those, your business is more sustainable and it's more longer term. And uh, obviously Apple have done it, Amazon have done it, Microsoft did it, you know. So all the great companies can do it. Um, the video have done it with chips. So a lot of the bigger countries, they just create a product that's ahead of the game, that people need you to have as part of 
their business, but you can be global much quicker. And that means that's why the sizes are so huge. We've got, I mean, most of these businesses are bigger than most countries by a long way in terms mm. of capitalization. Yeah. So that's because they're much bigger than most economies. I mean, what do you got? Apple's nearly a $2 trillion business. That's the mm. same size as Australia. Yeah, right. Peter, we've been going for a oh, while. Biggest <laughs> in the world. Okay. Look, I'm sorry the answers are longer than you may have liked, but hopefully, no. you know, people get some benefit. You know. No, that's that's it's absolutely fine. I genuinely appreciate your time. Um, uh, we're going to sign off publicly here. I'd like to ask you one thing. Um, post this interview, but uh, I genuinely appreciate your time, and I hope I hope people that are watching and listening to it have been able to get something out of it. Thanks, Jesse. Really appreciate it. Hope so too. This episode is brought to you by Romulus IT, offering fast, affordable remote support for common computer problems, including troubleshooting, health checks, virus removal, and software support. Visit RomulusIT.com to get your computer back on track.